This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, let's go. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, welcome, you insignificant rebels and misguided Sith, to another episode of Galactic Equity Mates. <laughs> I find your lack of financial knowledge disturbing. This podcast is your last chance for redemption. We guide you from pitfall financial ignorance to a level that might just might approach my own towering wealth. <laughs> if you're new here, your incompetence amuses me. Go back and start from the first episode. You'll find it enlightening, I assure you. My name is Bryce and that was a pretty rough start. I'm here with my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. It's a <laughs> it's an interesting tone that we take with our audience, I guess. But yes, I, I'm not... apologies about that rather, <laughs> rather direct opening. After five years, Bryce has decided that if he has convince you to start investing now he's gonna get more aggressive yeah, yeah. that's it i'm just gonna start yelling down the microphone <laughs> um but as always i've got to guess how chat gpt altered our introduction um and i'm gonna say that was darth vader nice from star wars yes i'm surprised well i'm actually gonna hazard a guess that you didn't do that work but sasha our producer did that work and i don't do any work here at Equity. well that is true we all know that um but you are notoriously pop cultured, uh, yeah, mm. yeah, deficient, no um, illiterate, pop culture illiterate. Very much so. And I would hazard a guess that you haven't seen Star Wars. Oh, come on. I have. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. There but, like, could I tell you what it's about and the key characters involved and the relationships between them and what order they came in? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> have I actually probably seen all of them? No. Okay. I, actually, the most recent one I remember seeing was when we were in... Oh, in Central Columbia? America? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. Somewhere we got <laughs> off like a 24-hour bus and all hiked it to the movies to watch Star Wars. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was shit ass. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry to Disney if you're listening. Anyway, let's get into it because we've just come off a, a really interesting interview with Drew Cohen from Speedwell Research. <laughs> Speaking of research... 
me not doing any work oh, with okay. this guy does a lot of work <laughs> this guy does heaps of work yeah. yeah so we spoke about two companies rh uh, which some people might know as restoration hardware and then constellation software an american company and a canadian company uh, but we also spoke to drew about his process and yeah as you said bryce this guy does the work. He does a lot of work. We asked him how many hours of work he spends researching stocks during this episode, but I, I loved this. Like He just had such deep knowledge of both stocks that he spoke about, even though we've heard both of them on the show before, learnt new things about them. Have we heard RH on the show before? We've definitely, we heard, had. definitely heard Constellation. There was a oh, third... Oh, sorry. I'm thinking... I'm thinking um, Floor and Decor. Floor and Decor. Yeah, that was another company that Drew said he could speak to. Yes, um, yes. But we have had that on the show before. Yeah. I'm realizing that this is just a... Like, we should stop waffling and just let people <laughs> listen to the interview. So... I do have two more things okay. to throw in, Ren. Not Firstly, uh, before we jump into it, if you're not signed up to our weekly newsletter, you're missing out. Head to equitymates.com slash email to sign up. We send out two emails a week on the Equity Mates newsletter. The first is on a Monday. We send five interesting articles that have piqued our interest. And then on Thursday, we send out an email that is a question from the community answered by one of Australia's leading financial advisors. So um, if Sounds you're not... Epic. It is epic, yeah. If you're not signed up, head to equitymates.com slash email. Link will be in the show notes. And then secondly, we must say that while we are licensed, we're not aware of your financial circumstances. So any information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general. And that goes for any of the stocks that we talk about today with True. Nice one. Now, Bryce, without any further ado, let's get to Drew Cohen from Speedwell Research. Well, Drew, welcome to Equity Mates. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get stuck in, we must start with a would you rather. So, would you rather get a paper cut every time you turn a page or bite your tongue every time you eat? <laughs> <laughs> This is this is pretty hard. Is is the right answer to do some sort of uh, Fermi problem on the amount of times I read a page versus take a bite of food? I was actually thinking that when I was putting that down, that it's not often I'm turning pages. I'm eating far more than I am turning pages in this digital world. You're so. not a big reader, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I know which way. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess that's the answer is I got to get rid of all my physical books then and just go to all e-books. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Ren? Well, uh, you... The, to lose the enjoyment of food, I think, would be a real, like, a real detractor to your life. So, I'd, I guess, cut my finger every time I turn a page. Yeah, it'd be a real blow. Maybe we need to start reading on big, long scrolls again. True. <laughs> <laughs> Producer Sasha? Oh, I was thinking you'd move to audiobooks, for nice. sure. I mean, audiobooks or um, Kindle. True. Yeah. It, it would be yeah. good for podcasting. What are we yeah. saying? True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we digress. So, Drew, we've got plenty to, uh, to get into today, two companies to deep dive on, but we, we'll start with a bit about yourself and your investment philosophy. So, at a high level, how would you describe your investment philosophy? Um, it's probably cliche. I would probably say, you know, long-term, fundamental, bottom-up analysis, just like I'm sure many other people on your podcast. But I guess the real distinction comes in the process not so much in the selection of companies. I think a lot of people can agree on what makes a great company, but ultimately it comes down to the level of diligence 
that really allows you to hold a company when you know the market is doing whatever it's doing and the stock is fluctuating to say that I know more about this company than the market does. And I know it's almost a arrogant presupposition because sometimes people always say you got to listen to the market and, and uh, take feedback. If something's going wrong with the stock, maybe you're wrong. I kind of take the opposite approach. I think that it's very hard to find a good quality company. And if you are always trying to look for someone else's opinion. And in that case, this is the market, which we know is more or less a random noise generator as far as uh, stock price signals are concerned, then I think that's uh, a fallacious uh, presupposition there. Yeah, I, I do. I do like that you acknowledge that because you're right. Over the years, we've interviewed hundreds of experts and everyone is a you know, bottom-up, long-term, fundamentals-focused stock picker. And it just does make it, I guess, a crowded <laughs> field. And, you know, you understand why so many large-cap managers sort of just revert to the mean often because everyone's following the same process. So when you're, when you're thinking about playing that sort of crowded field, you know, you mentioned there, you've got to know more than the rest of the market. Um, but is there anything else that you like in your research process or in the companies that you're looking at uh, that yeah. you think distinguishes yourself from a number of the other experts we've spoken to over the years? Yeah, I think when we, you know, when Speedwell does its level of research that we do, we go back to all the way at the beginning of the company's founding, sometimes even before, if it's an entrepreneur that had a prior business. And what you're trying to do is you're really analyzing the business almost like it's an uh, organism. And you're trying to see what its behavior is. And a lot of times you could find in the very early history that it behaves in a certain way that is somewhat predictable. And you could kind of see the same sort of issues popping up much later in life. And so kind of really understanding how the manager really tackles all of these issues uh, is, is really something kind of critical to our process. We'll talk about RH in a little bit. I think understanding the early problems of RH and how the original uh, entrepreneur tried to solve for that versus how ultimately Gary Friedman did is really kind of an important distinction in understanding uh, that business model. We'll talk about uh, CSU as well. You can see just right from the outset, uh, Mark Leonard kind of in 1995 laid out his vision from Constellation Software. And the next 25, 30 years was him just building that. And so ultimately, it's kind of you know, in one sense, it's kind of almost like a Lindy rule kind of thing where things don't really change that often. And kind of the longer they tend to stay the same, the more likely they are to be the same in the future as well. So we we like to go very far back into the, to the history. We like to look at, you know, all sorts of competitors, see if there's anything we could ever try to triangulate. A lot of times a competitor may say something that you could kind of triangulate into some sort of analysis. You know, we did this very recently on Etsy, we're doing something where you could kind of look at what eBay's active buyer base did. And it's kind of a similar business to Etsy. And you could kind of compare that to how the cohorts of Etsy behaved. And just looking across, you know, not necessarily sticking to just the business, but trying to draw lessons from competitors and any other businesses and industries. Yeah, I know this is what everyone else says as well, but that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, like, it's very easy for everyone to say they do it, but like the value is in actually doing the work and uh, and then synthesizing all that information what one thing uh we, we want to so we're going to unpack two companies and and i guess we'll um hear some of the work that you've been doing and and your investment process when we talk through the companies but before we get there uh when we were researching before this interview we came across i guess some of your your mental models or or, or different sort of theories you have um around businesses and consumers 
And one that caught our eye uh, was the your consumer hierarchy of preferences. Now, people might be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is a your version of that. Um, and it helps you explain why some companies win and others don't. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do here as investors, figure out which companies are going to win. So uh, can you explain it for us? Yeah, yeah, definitely. As you noted, um, I just you know, stole his <laughs> framework and renamed it. But I think the idea is pertinent. And this kind of goes back to the whole idea of like being multidisciplinary, understanding different fields and drawing from it. But I think sometimes when you're analyzing a co uh, company, you'll kind of notice that the pre-existing frameworks won't necessarily give you the right level of analysis to truly understand it. I'll talk about how that applies for RH later when we go through that. But this was, I was looking at like different commerce companies and it's really applicable to a lot of companies. And so to explain the idea in short, a lot of companies talk about the value prop, right? The value prop is what a company offers. The consumer hierarchy of preferences is what the consumer wants. And it's not a crazy proposition for me to tell you consumers want a variety of different things and they want them in a different order, right? And so the idea is that once a company is able to offer a certain amount of preferences and fill a certain amount of those preferences for the consumer, they compel a purchase. They compel a purchase. However, uh, if they are able to fulfill any preferences beyond that point, what they're doing is they're building consumer surplus. And so we could think about, you know, Costco is kind of the iconic example of building consumer surplus where everyone wants a lot of quality goods very cheaply, right? And so you know, Costco talks about how they try to set their, their gross margin uh, markup at around 13 to 14%. And that gives them about a 3% margin. I don't think anyone is doubting that they could raise their prices 3% and no one would really leave Costco for any sort of time, except what they would be doing is they would be extracting that consumer surplus. And so if we think about the value of a company, it's a DCF, right? It's always a DCF. And so when you're doing a DCF on a company, one of the most important inputs, of course, is how many years out you're projecting that cash flow to be. And so the more consumer surplus you're extracting out now and today, you're basically shortening the length of the company. Because the more someone you know likes a company and really enjoys their product, the less likely they are to churn. So you could kind of think of it as trading off profits today for future lifetime. Is Costco the best company you've seen with consumer surplus? Um, I think it's it's probably most clear, honestly, if you're just thinking about like a clothing retailer, where you could say, I'm looking for, you know, a navy sweater that's comfortable and cost under $50 and I want it to be stylish. And so that that is like the sufficient number of preferences uh, for someone to actually make a purchase. Whereas then you also find this sweater and you also find out they're very eco-friendly and they donate to all sorts of causes that you really like. Uh, then you really love this company and you love that sweater. However, you know, the research shows a lot of times just being green on itself is not enough to compel a purchase. And I think this is why. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating way to think. And I think a lot of people listening who run their own businesses can probably run that analysis. It's like, what is the minimum number of things required to compel a purchase and, and, and what are the important things that drive that and then what are all the additional things that they're doing and I'm sure some of them build consumer surplus and I'm sure there are others that the company thinks are quite important but the consumer doesn't care about so it's probably an, an analysis you could run on you it's probably analysis we should run on ourselves here at equity mate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Drew, before we jump into our companies, out of interest, how many hours do you reckon you spend doing research on your companies? 
It's probably, I'm guessing, like 300 plus per company. It depends. Sometimes if it's an old company, they got earnings transcripts going back 20 years. They're at every single conference every quarter, so it could really add up. And we read everything. And you never know. There's like sometimes this one offhand comment. I was researching Copart. They've never talked about their market share ever, except in 2005 once. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, and you know, they also happen to report what uh, annual volumes are too. And so you could kind of put the two together to get an estimate of what the market share was. And so it, it comes in handy just often enough that it forces me to continue to do it. <laughs> are you using AI in any of your research process now? I, I've tried some of it. The problem is anytime I use it, I'm never sure if it's right. And so it kind of defeats the whole purpose. I, I want to use it, I guess, at its best is like a better Google search where it can just read through all the annual reports and remind me to go through the 3Q16 transcript to check something. And I've tried it. I've tried it like that. I'm in some like VCs demo for a product like that. And it, it works half the time and that's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what we found as well. You know, like it, we're a perfect use case for AI with, you know, all the content we produce, but it just gets it wrong enough that we don't trust it at all. So hopefully yeah. that changes over time. Hopefully, or we become yeah. a fake news company. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Drew, I think um, that that really frames, you know, the 300 plus hours really frames the two company deep dives that we're about to do. The two companies we're going to talk about are RH, which is uh, was formerly called Restoration Hardware, and then Constellation Software. Let's start with RH because uh, we've spoken a little bit about Constellation in the past, but I don't think we've ever had someone talk about RH. So excited to get into this one. Introduce us to the company. Tell us what it does. A lot of our listeners aren't in the US, so they probably haven't shopped there. And also, when did it change its name from Restoration Hardware to RH? Yeah, we'll, we'll go through all of that. So uh, restoration hardware, the one-liner is it's a luxury home goods retailer. So sells a lot of furniture, anything else to design in your home, uh, from textiles, bedding, all of that. And so that's, that's a very high level one-liner. What they would actually do and how they would actually try to describe themselves is being an arbiter of taste and being a curator of space. And so, you know, you could kind of imagine these other competitors, they're trying to sell a product, whereas RH is trying to sell a vision. And so, if you go back to Restoration Hardware's history, you know, they started in 1979 literally as an antique hardware seller, right? And so this is uh, Stephen Gordon in a city in California that was out in kind of the middle of nowhere. He's trying to redo his antique home and he can't find the right supplies. And so he goes together and he looks for all these very uh, eclectic vendors, and he's able to put together a magazine right in his living room, and he doesn't have any money to buy anything. And so he just marks the price up of everything, uh, 2x, and people come in, they look at the magazine, and when they order something, he orders one for himself too. And so that's how he redid his house. <laughs> he decided to kind of turn this into a business. The problem with the business, though, is that you can imagine you're not buying antique hardware very often. So it's a very slow moving good. Maybe it has a decent margin to it, but there's not good sales velocity. And he was noticing this. Now, a lot of times when a company has a product that is not frequently purchased, they try to solve for this by building a lot of top of mind awareness. This is very clear with a lot of car companies who blanket advertisements all over the place, BMW, Mercedes, Audi. They're always on the TV screen to remind you that they exist in the event that you do want to buy a car. 
Now, they don't have the luxury of doing all of this kind of top of funnel advertising to make people aware of him because he's a small little shop. And so the way he tries to solve for this is by selling a bunch of these little chotskis, a bunch of these knickknacks. And so he would make this very eclectic assortment of products, everything from mayonnaise spreaders to little wooden canoes, dog biscuits, atomic robot man toy dolls. And so the idea of all of this novelty is almost similar to the way like an Instagram ad works, right? Where it's, you're trying to get a lot of uh, ads in your feed. You're trying to show someone something so they compulsively purchase, right? And so maybe that's more targeted, but the idea here is we want to create a lot of novelty. We want to draw customers in. And when they're in, they're going to see that we also sell oak chests for $2,000. And now in the report, I call this the King Midas problem because they are increasing traffic at the cost of decreased conversions. And so a lot of people are hearing about RH or restoration hardware as known at the time. And the interesting thing is that this model was actually working a lot. When they originally IPO'd in the mid 90s, Wall Street really loved it. They thought it was a genius way to drive traffic to the store. And what ended up happening was the fad kind of wore off. They were never that profitable because they were never that well run. And all of the Chotskys they bought that didn't end up selling, they'd have to discount. And that took away what little profit they had. They became a very seasonal business. And it was kind of at this point, they're nearing bankruptcy. This is in 2000. They violated debt covenants. The stock's trading under a dollar. It's a penny stock. At this point, uh, steps in Gary Friedman. Gary Friedman uh, started at The Gap, later moved to Williams-Sonoma, had his line in creating uh, Pottery Barn, as well as West Elm Furniture Brand. He puts his own money into this company after being stepped over for CEO. And he starts there, and it's his job to fix this mess, basically. And there's actually a funny story of him going through these stores and looking at the product assortment and seeing like these Santa Claus-looking lawn gnomes. And he's like, why are we selling this in July? And they're like, oh, that's like an awkward... Aquaman sprinkler doll. He's like, oh my God, I've wasted all of my money. But but so he kind of envisions taking this a little bit more upscale. At first, he just really wants to position above Pottery Barn, right? He does not have this grand vision of being a luxury retailer. And so he cuts some of the knickknacks and Trotsky's. He starts to insource a lot of their products before they were dealing with a lot of middlemen that laid to a superfluous cost in all of their items, which was really driving down their profit margins. And so he solves kind of these basic things. And It's sort of working, and then the financial crisis hits. They take the company public. Sears actually tried to buy them, but ultimately did not. And now the company's private. It comes back uh, public again in 2012. Now it is known only as RH. It is at this point that they really hit home this idea of being a luxury retailer. They get rid of their mall footprint, and now they're rolling out these bespoke galleries that are 20,000 square feet. And now they're actually growing them. They're saying by 2014, they're opening up one in Atlanta that's even bigger. And they continue to grow the footprint. They want to make RH really be a statement. And so the idea there that I said prior, you know, I was like, oh, how do you drive traffic to these sorts of stores without advertising, right? And so what he does is he says, I'm going to get really architecturally interesting buildings that are just huge. You can't miss them. I'm going to fill them with product, which by the way, you can't do unless you have a lot of product. Their catalogs are almost a thousand pages now. And we're going to fill them with a lot of product and people are going to notice these. The other thing that ended up happening though, when they built such large galleries was they had all of this extra space to experiment with hospitality experiences. And so they rolled out a restaurant in 2016 in Chicago. So this is a furniture retailer 
rolling out a restaurant in Chicago. It sounds like not such a great idea. However, what actually ends up happening is people love the space, they love being there, and there's lines around the block. And so it works really well. In the meantime, a lot of people are being introduced to the brand, and they're kind of thinking in the back of their head that when I do need to go redo my furniture, at least if they're well, well to do, they're going to go to RH to do it. And so that's kind of the beginnings of really positioning them toward this luxury positioning. And then for the next, you know, this is in 2015, 16, for the next five, six years further, they just continue to really step on that model. They do a lot on the back end to re-architect the logistics, to make everything kind of work coherently. But that, that's kind of where I'll leave it for now. Wow. I think um, I'm trying to think here in Australia, we don't have anything of the equivalent from a furniture point of view. We've got like... I just, I wrote in our notes, this is giving me premium Ikea vibes just because of like, you know, massive store footprints with the, the hospitality and catering section, but just a lot more yeah. expensive. <laughs> so I think to your point at the start where you're saying that they're, you know, they're not a furniture retailer, they're selling an experience, they're selling a, a lifestyle, a, a vision... Like I think most luxury brands would sort of say the same, the Ferraris, the LVMHs, that, you know, they're all selling the idea or the lifestyle that you would get with these products. So how, I imagine they're not the only, I guess, luxury furniture retailer. How do they really separate themselves from their competition? What is the competitive landscape like? And sort of how do they grow from here? Yeah, so you could think about the competitive set in terms of other furniture players, in which case there's a lot, right? There's plenty of, of furniture people that are very high end. There's our house. There's a lot. Uh, there's, you know, B&B Italia, a lot of different high end places, more than, you know, you could even imagine. There's the Pacific Design offices in Los Angeles, which is just nothing but hundreds of different vendors, right? And so there's a lot of competition. And so I think what really sets them apart is where in the customer journey are you really trying to focus on? And so we could think about like the Clay Christensen jobs framework where you think about like, why are you hiring this sort of product? It's funny you mentioned Ikea because that is a classic example of a job to be done, right? Well, you go to Ikea because you need furniture quickly, you need it today, and you don't want to pay a lot and you don't want to you know, wait a long time because you're setting up for college and it starts tomorrow, right? And so that, that's the job to be done. And everything within Ikea, from the daycare centers to the food, it's all to support that job they have. And now we could think about RH through a similar lens. And so if you're going to another furniture store, you're going to see just a bunch of product all over the place. Most of the time, it's different manufacturers. It's all thrown together, and it's on you to figure out what you want. That's why many people, they hire an interior designer. Whereas in contrast to RH, you're going into the store, you're looking at a room that's fully laid out, and you're saying, this is you know beautiful. I love this design. Let's do something similar. RH has their own in-house interior designers who will then help you do all of that within your home. And so they're really trying to move where they're addressing in the customer journey. So that that's one thing. And then the other thing you could kind of think about is just the sheer amount of different products they have across all of their different lines, everything from, you know, a contemporary line, a modern line, what they call interiors, ski house, beach, outdoors. So they have a lot more selection 
versus another player. Now that's important because if you're going to have this massive six-story design gallery, you're going to need to be able to fill it with a lot of product. Now, if you're going to go have an interior designer and not offer any other competitor products, but only your own, you're also going to need to have multiple different designs. And so you could kind of see how all of these elements are working together. And so I would actually say their main competitor is not necessarily another furniture retailer. It's really the interior designer. It's really a question of whether or not a customer goes to the interior designer first and they're saying, okay, I'll handle all of this for you. Or if you're someone who you know moved into an apartment and you just want everything to look nice, you don't want uh, the hassle of interviewing people and dealing with interior designers who, by the way, they don't actually uh, tell you how much the items cost because they get special discounts and then they mark it up, which is another uh, thing we could get into for RH. But all of that is kind of why RH is, is providing a different service in this area. So let's get to the financials and the investment thesis. I've just had a look at their numbers. So $3.5 billion in revenue and about uh, half a billion dollars in profit, which at first glance feels like pretty healthy margins for a large format retailer. Talk to us about, I guess, yeah, the financial side, but also like what the investment thesis is going forward. Like why of all the opportunities out there, this is one that stands out to you. Yeah. And so the numbers you just mentioned are right, except those profits are down about 50% uh, oh, wow. from a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. So they, they peaked at 25% margins in 2021. And so it's a mix right now of them continuing to build out these galleries that's showing up in OPEX. And then it is also a little bit of uh, discounting old lines that is that is flowing through that. And so all of that seems to be weighing on margins right now. Uh, when he took this business over, they had negative margins. At first, he was like, let's go for a high single digit margin. Then he raised it. Once they hit 20, 25%, he was saying, look, if you look at other top tier luxury players, they've achieved 30%. They've gone higher than that. You don't, necess- you don't need to assume that, but that's ultimately where they're gunning for. And so that that is uh, kind of just the margin profile there. And then in terms of sales, uh, even though they've been in the process of kind of upgrading their design galleries, they're still only halfway through this. So they still do have a bunch of these legacy galleries that are over you know, a decade and a half old. And so every time they refurbish a gallery, they get a direct sales uplift in that area. And then they also get an indirect uplift from online and the source book sales, which are their their catalogs. And so they're aiming for five to six billion in North America in sales. Uh, and then on top of that, they've just launched international and they're saying maybe international can be 80% of our business. They started out with England. They're going to open up a London gallery as well. And then they also have Paris and a few other locations coming out soon. And so you could kind of look at that and say, okay, five to six billion in North America revenues, that's a little less risky because the footprint's already here. There's a pretty good history of them upgrading these galleries, brand takes and all of that. And you know, the restaurants do seem to drive awareness. It's also interesting to note that Restoration or RH has not increased their footprint at all. They've increased their square footage of selling space, but they have not increased their uh, store footprint at all. And it's still multiplied sales, uh, I don't know, 10x maybe over the past decade, two decades. And so it's really been a story of just growing these bigger galleries. And so five to six billion North America, they're saying maybe 20 to 25 billion international, their aspirational margins are over 25%. But that's also why um, I think it's good to ask the reverse question, which is, Uh, what are you paying for today? And so that's why we like to do the reverse DCF, where instead of uh, the output being a price, you make the input a price, and then the output is a return. And so 
the way this would work for RH is you could say, okay, I'm going to assume they hit this sales figure. I'm going to put in uh, the current market cap. I believe it's around $8 billion. And then what is my implied return? And kind of by inversing it, and then you could sensitize the assumptions. What you're basically doing is saying, what is my risk uh, for a given return? And that can be very helpful when you're trying to think about these questions, because I don't know whether or not they'll ever be able to hit a 30% you know, margin. That seems kind of wild to me. If they do, I don't want to necessarily pay for it today, right? I mean, it's a pretty amazing story. And if it does hit these 30% margins, it's there's st- still obviously plenty of growth to come. But it's important that we talk about the the risks or the or the bear case. What are some of the red flags that you'll be looking for over the next few years for you to get out of something, an investment like this? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it is a consumer product, a consumer brand, and co- consumers can be fickle, right? Now, I'm not so worried that uh, a competitor is going to be able to copy everything they did. Uh, there's just many things with when you're getting that kind of a size of a gallery, they've done special things on the real estate side and the, the sale leasebacks that have allowed them to do it much cheaper, their level of collection. Uh, there's things they had to do with logistics in their DCs, uh, distribution centers to be able to work all that out. It's ultimately that people, for whatever reason, they don't like their styles, their styles are a miss, and they don't like the RH brand. Interior designers continue to be more of a holistic service that people want. And rich people maybe see RH as kind of shoddy or something like that. But you know, mitigating against those risks is the fact that they have a lot of different styles. Sometimes they get the critique that they actually copy a lot of designers. The flip side of that, it's like they're almost like Zara. They're very on top of a lot of new trends. And so it's unlikely they're going to be totally uh, out of style for very long. And they're always rolling out new styles. And then it's also uh, furniture is unbranded. So people don't actually know whether or not it's RH unless you tell them. And so... You know, as you think about uh, how much in a brand can really extend, uh, I think that's something worth considering. Although the flip side of that is a lot of people have no problem wearing, you know, LV or Gucci, even though those seem very common. I, I guess one uh, final risk that we didn't speak about is founder risk. Like it sounds like Gary Friedman turned this business around. I've just done some Googling of him. Uh, he's 66. He actually got married in Ibiza last month to an Australian. So bit of a connection to Australia. We love to see that. If he left the business, would that break the thesis? Or do you think, you know, he's turned it around and it will survive beyond him now? I probably wouldn't want to stick around to find out that answer. I mean, there there are certain CEOs that have done such a good job of managing a business. Uh, It's not necessarily like the business can't do without them. It just, it seems riskier, especially when you are still in, you know, somewhat this transitory period. It has been, you know, two decades since he took over. But, you know, you do see also on some of the earnings calls, uh, he talks a lot about promotion. We didn't mention this so much, but uh, one of their things is to never promote because it causes all sorts of issues from supply chain to inventory stocking to bad brand perception, uh, et cetera. And so he was considering promoting uh, when COVID first came and it was actually his employees that were like, nope, you said we can never do that. So (laughs) you do see some seeds that the culture is being incorporated, but yeah, I don't know. That That's probably a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> if he's yeah. not there. I love that. Well, Drew, that was pretty fascinating and can't wait to hear your thoughts uh, on the next company, which is Constellation Software. We're going to take a very quick break. And then on the other side, we're going to jump straight into it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So welcome back. We're here with Drew Cohen, and uh, we've just heard the uh, investment case for RH or restoration hardware. Now we're going to jump into a company that we've spoken about a bit on the, on the show before for very good reason because it is fascinating and that is Constellation Hardware. So if you've just joined us... Constellation Software. So, <laughs> Constellation Software. I didn't touch that. How about you pitch us Constellation Hardware, Drew? <laughs> if you've just joined us for the first time, you're in for a treat. So let's start at the top, Drew. What is the company? How does it describe itself? How do you describe it? So... I'm going to go back to the beginnings again. And so Mark Leonard was working at a VC company, Venture West, and they noticed that in their venture portfolio, there were these certain kind of companies that seemed to consistently be very lucrative for them. And those companies were what are called VMS companies or uh, vertical market software companies. And so Mark Leonard basically had this idea of instead of uh, you know selling these companies and flipping the portfolio all the time, these are such quality companies. Why don't I create some sort of vehicle that just allows me to hold these types of companies forever? And so Constellation Software was born in 1995. And the idea was to be basically a holding company for all of these VMS companies. And now VMS, vertical market software, is in contrast to, you could think of horizontal market software. And so that would be any sort of software that transverses multiple different industry lines. And so Microsoft Office is probably the easiest example of that. You could think of like Intuit's QuickBooks. It's not specific accounting for an industry. It's just accounting software. And so that's horizontal software. And you think about that and you realize, okay, well, the benefit of that is there's a big TAM. There's uh, lots of potential customers for it, right? So why would you want to do vertical market where it's the opposite case? It's a very niche. It's a very small TAM and it's only applicable for very few people to just tell you how niche some of these software offerings can be, you know, one of them is chicken coop software. So it helps you monitor your chicken coop, which you can imagine is not a big TAM, but what you give up in TAM, you uh, make up for in business quality. And so what happens when it is only a very small market is there's usually one, maybe a couple at most companies that are vying to serve it. Once you are the first person to serve it, because it is usually a mission critical software, which means that you cannot remove it from your business operations without potentially running total havoc on your sales uh, or serving your customers. And so you can never really pull it out. And that's one factor. The other is that there's limited substance. Substitutes. And then on top of that, 
there's also the fact that there's just very high switching cost. And that goes back to the mission critical and all of that. And so there's also very positive financial attributes to the business. There's low CapEx, recurring revenue, and very low customer churn for the, the reasons that we mentioned prior. And so he really likes these sorts of businesses. There's a problem though. The problem is that these businesses are very small. You know, they're usually about just $5 million. And so what he has to do is he has to create some sort of system where they can systematically uh, deploy enough capital that it actually becomes meaningful. And this was, of course, much easier in 95 when they were just starting. Uh, but now, you know, fast forward a couple decades, they're deploying roughly a billion dollars of free cash flow a year into these acquisitions that are on average about five million bucks. And so we, we talked about some of like the virtues of the business, the why a vertical market software is such a good place to invest money. But Constellation software itself, and I hate to use the Berkshire analogy because I feel like people way overuse Berkshire analogies, but it is sort of like Berkshire in that it is a holding company. You have Mark Leonard at top who's helping dictate capital allocation decisions, and he's setting a required return across the entire organization. And if someone within that organization cannot meet that threshold return, he is uh, compelling you to send the money back up to him, in which case they will deploy it elsewhere. However, it is different than uh, Berkshire and this key aspect that a lot of operators have capital allocation decision. This is uh, uh, have capital allocation discretion. This is very different than Berkshire, where you can only have discretion of capital allocation within your business. This is going out and acquiring a lot of other disparate businesses, right? And so Mark Leonard sitting on top. He is telling anyone, if you cannot hit this threshold return, please send the money back up. And so they have these six operating groups. All of them are deploying their own capital to try to hit the threshold returns. And they're all helping with capital allocation decisions. So the Constellation is uh, one of my favorite companies and uh, it's one of my big frustrations here in Australia that not enough of our brokers give access to the Canadian market. It's probably not a problem for you in the US, but uh, very frustrating over here. There's two questions for me. So Mark Leonard has acquired over 600 businesses so far and every time he acquires a business, his beard gets a little bit longer and if people don't get that, uh, Google him. There's a question about like how many more, can he just keep this incredible track record of acquisition going? How many VMS businesses are there out there? But I guess then the second question is because of his incredible success, surely the field has got more crowded. Like there's more potential acquirers looking at these businesses and looking at sort of doing what he has done. Uh, and we know what happens. We've seen it in the private equity space when more and more money flows into that space and more and more potential acquirers get there, prices get bid up and that then becomes an issue. So how do you think about that sort of challenge, you know, to, to continue having that success and to continue having that success in a more crowded field? Yeah, I think that's almost entirely the question with Constellation. It's interesting because, you know, any sort of company you buy, right, the question is always, you know, how much capital can they continue to deploy at this ROIC? And it is just so explicit with Constellation that it's interesting, right? And so, I, you know, on one hand, they'll talk about how there's tens of thousands of VMS companies. And within any given year, they didn't even know that a majority of uh, the VMS companies that sold existed. So they feel like they do have ample opportunity to continue to monitor and build more relations with these companies so that when they do go to sell, they come to Constellation. Uh, it's definitely an issue. I mean, if you're looking at in terms of like prices, very early on in, in the 90s, Mark was talking about buying these companies at one to two times revenue. And so it's 
it's definitely more expensive now. They're, they're moving to like an EBITDA multiple, but that is, that is a question. And so again, we kind of, we go back to the reverse DCF, which is what is priced in. And that will help you realize like what, what is the expectations that need to happen in order for them to achieve uh, my return as an investor? And so you'll see that they're deploying, you know, they're generating a billion or so in cash. And if there's all, if they're only doing a hundred or so acquisitions, that's only about half of that capital that is going to be eaten up into these acquisitions. And as they continue to generate more and more cash flow, that number will continue to be a smaller amount, which means they're going to be deploying less capital. Uh, that is definitely like the bear thesis. I, I would say though, contradicting that is the fact that they have been able to actually find acquisitions at larger size. So they did, you know, an all scripts acquisition, 700 million a couple of years ago. They did uh, more recently, uh, Black Knight had a spinoff, um, uh, Optimal Blue, and another another uh, piece of their software. So that was another 700 million. And so the more they can do these bigger acquisitions, maybe they're adding on a little bit of debt to help uh, boost their uh, hurdle rate, ring fence debt. Mark is very careful to say that. And then on, on top of that, you are continuing to see more monitoring of more of these VMS companies. And so it is definitely a concern, I guess you could say, because you know if you're uh, projecting out cash flows a decade, two decades prior, which of course, if you're paying 40 times multiple for a company that you need the company to exist at that point, uh, it does become five, 10 billion of capital that you need them to continue to deploy. And so that's really only really plausible to the extent they could continue to uh, ramp up their capital allocation. So Drew, when thinking about this company, similar to the Berkshire analogy, a lot of it revolves around Mark himself and the, the genius that he is. How, how much of your investment thesis I guess, looks at the risk of what happens to the company when he leaves. Is, is this a story of Constellation Software? Is Mark Leonard? It's an interesting question to be juxtaposed next to Gary Friedman. I would say that if Mark Leonard left today, I, while it wouldn't be positive, I wouldn't be as worried. I guess part of that is just the decentralized nature of Constellation. He does help set the culture and the hurdle rates and all that, but all of that seems to be pretty embedded in the, the culture as it stands. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly how involved he is in day to day uh, today. You know, in contrast, you could say, would you still own Berkshire if Buffett left? And Buffett would like to think that he's done a good enough job of building the company that people say yes. Um, and so I think Mark Leonard has. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you, you would think that all these sort of near monopolies in these tiny little niches and verticals should just be able to keep ticking along and doing their thing. And I think, uh, you know, we, we've kind of covered the bull and the bear case and the long-term vision. Like Constellation, once you understand it as a business, it kind of becomes quite a simple business to understand. It's just, can they continue to execute and, and continue to, you know, be disciplined when it comes to price of acquisitions and stuff like that. So I think to, to close it out, I, I want to uh, give people a sense of uh, just how niche some of these businesses Ah, that they're acquiring. You mentioned Chicken Coop Software. Uh, there are a couple of other like really niche or really rogue software platforms that they've acquired. You have everything from uh, moving software, like to help movers uh, run their business, uh, mortgage origination, stuff in the oil gas field, uh, bus scheduling systems. Uh, it's it's almost anything you could think of. They have something within that industry vertical. Cable operators. Fascinating. It's, it is. It's, it's just another reminder that if we had just at university, we'd done software engineering instead, <laughs> we could have created just weird, so weird and wonderful software and we could have been acquired. Ben, it's never too late. <laughs> you, are, you can go back to uni if you want. <laughs> 
Well, Drew, we, um, we've really enjoyed our conversation with you today and um, we'll put some links in the show notes through to, uh, to your website and where people can find more information on what you do. But uh, we would like to finish with one final question and each year we run the Equity Mates uh, Awards, which is an opportunity for our community to, uh, to vote on um, people and, and products that they feel have really helped them on their investing journey throughout the year. And one of them is um, the Expert of the Year. And by, uh, by being on the show today, you are automatically entered into the competition and uh, we're getting towards the end of the year as well. So it won't be far off voting time. To, to close out, to uh, just leave our audience with something to remember you by, if you can provide us with a piece of advice, an actionable insight to help them on their journey, or even a content recommendation just to leave with them today, that'd be great. Well, content recommendation, you should definitely check out Speedwell's new podcast, uh, nice, The Synopsis. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Uh, I hear that guy sometimes says smart things. Uh, other than that, I don't know. I feel like everyone you know, has all sorts of book lists and all that. I don't feel like it's very hard to figure out things that are, are worth uh, spending your time researching. I would say it's more about really kind of going narrow within a specific area. And so, you know, I started reading more about Clay Christensen. Everyone's read uh, Disruptive Innovators. Uh, it's worth reading all of his books because they all have something really interesting in them. And I think that's the case for a lot of people, whereas maybe you hear they have like one interesting fact or tidbit. It's worth kind of clicking into that and, and going more into it to really understand that. And if you're like me, you'll come to the point where you think that you've come up with all these frameworks and then it turns out someone else already did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that just means you're on the right track. You know, that's confirmation that. that yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do love that, Drew. I um, I think two fascinating companies and I, I really enjoyed how you unpacked them and just uh, hearing about, you know, 300 plus hours per company is a reminder that the level of work that sort of we we should be putting into this. We so, don't do. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to go hit the books, but uh, a massive thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks, It was Drew. great. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.